Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Interfaith Action Podcast. My name is Stephen Slaybaugh, and I serve as the co-director of programs and operations at Interfaith Action in Southwest Michigan. The conversation you're about to listen to was the first in our series titled Theologies of Transformation and Actions for Justice, a monthly series exploring the interfaith principles that guide our life and work. Our faith-based commitments around the ideals of common good, common home, and common life will center these monthly discussions and will include a variety of panelists across faith traditions, inviting people of faith across Southwest Michigan and beyond to a time of listening and contemplation as we consider the role of faith in action. The first conversation of this series was facilitated by my colleague and co-director of Faith Relationships and Strategy, Sid Moan, who is joined by three panelists, Dr. Mahan Mirza, the Executive Director of the Ansari Institute for Global Engagement with Religion at the University of Notre Dame, Rabbi Karen Kompinez of Temple Bethel in South Bend, and Dr. Melinda Elizabeth Berry, the Associate Professor of Theology and Ethics at Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary in Elkhart. During this discussion, we asked our panelists to review Interfaith Action's 10 Interfaith Principles. You can find these principles in the description of this podcast or on our website at www.swmichintherfaith.org. We hope you enjoy the following conversation. Thanks for listening. Okay, let's uh, get started. Um, my name is Sid Moan. I serve as co-director of uh, Interfaith Action of Southwest Michigan. It's my delight to welcome all of you to this launch of our 2022 discussion series uh, entitled Theologies of Transformation, uh, Actions of uh, Justice. Um, our work hopefully will contribute to the historic and the growing contemporary body of literature uh, around public theology. And these programs will also uh, be maintained as podcasts in our resource library so that they contribute to the field in the future as well as are accessible uh, for small group uh, discussions at a latter point in time. Uh, uh, public theology is something that has influenced much of my spiritual formation, uh, beginning, I think, uh, with William Stringfellow uh, influencing my Christian formation in his uh, important book entitled A Public and Private Faith. And then I would uh, reference uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, uh, whose important book to me, uh, The Dignity of uh, Difference. And then I'm reminded of uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, who died just last week, a key advisor and influencer of Martin Luther King Jr., really somewhat responsible uh, for King's uh, anti-war activism and adoption of pacifism as part of his public theology framework. Uh, uh, Nathan introduced the concept of engaged Buddhism, uh, applying Buddhist 
principles to uh, public political uh, reform. And then finally, I would add one of our uh, presenters, uh, Dr. Mahan Mirza, whose keynote in the 2021 annual lecture on faith and civic life uh, made a powerful presentation entitled A Life of Faith Beyond Individual Worship to Work for the Common Good. Krista Tippett in a past uh, segment on, on being defined public theology in part by this. Number one, it has to emerge from the vast diversity of our modern lives. And in some cases to uproot our traditional grounds. And number two, it is to articulate spiritual points of view to challenge and to deepen our thinking on questions in public and political life. So that's what we're up to this year. Uh, that's uh, why we are delighted to have our panelists engage in a beginning discussion uh, with us. Uh, let me uh, introduce them. I've already started uh, an introduction to Dr. Mahan Mirza. Uh, he is the director of the Ansari Institute uh, on the Engagement of Global Religions at Notre Dame University, former Dean of Faculty at uh, Zaytuna College in Berkeley, which was the United States first fully accredited uh, Muslim liberal arts college. His, uh, MA is from Hartford Seminary, his PhD in religious studies from Yale. Second, uh, we're delighted to have Rabbi uh, Karen Campanez, who is the first female rabbi at uh, Temple Beth El in South Bend, where she's been for about seven years. Uh, prior to uh, uh, her work in South Bend, she spent about 13 years uh, in Flint, uh, Michigan. She was, is ordained uh, from the Hebrew Union College, uh, the Jewish Institute of Religion, has her BA in philosophy from Monash University in uh, Melbourne. As an immigrant, uh, she presided at an interfaith service in South Bend about uh, five years ago uh, in support of dreamers, uh, translating her immigrant experience into justice work on behalf of uh, new immigrants. Um, Dr. Melinda Berry uh, is the Assistant Press Professor of Theology and Ethics at the Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary in Elkhart. Uh, she is the chair of the History, Theology and Ethics Department at the seminary. Her master's in philosophy is from Union Theological Seminary, where she also received her PhD. Uh, she's commenting uh, tonight from both Anabaptist uh, theological perspectives, but also from a feminist and womanist uh, perspectives. Uh, I think uh, each of you who registered for this event uh, received a copy of our uh, draft 10 public theology principles. These were, these were developed last year 
by a study group that looked at uh, Pope Francis's encyclical Fratelli Tutti, which is perhaps the, the most universal uh, and most recent statement on public uh, theology from a Catholic perspective. And I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Clark Gilpin, uh, Dean Emeritus of the University of Chicago Divinity School, and Bobby Gaunt, uh, former senior warden at All Saints Episcopal Church, who led uh, that study series last year. So let's jump into the discussion. Uh, and there are no formal presentations. Uh, we are hopeful for lively conversation. Uh, panelists, feel free to interrupt each other, uh, uh, express your, your candid perspectives and uh, your, your guidance as we look to refine our principles, uh, particularly in accord with uh, Krista Tippett's challenge that uh, our public theology should be informed by the diversity of our society. So as each of you looked at our 10 draft uh, principles, were there any that jumped out to you as discordant uh, with a, uh, a Muslim, a Jewish, an Anabaptist, a womanist uh, perspective? I can answer that in one word, and the word is no. Ah, well, but, but, first, but, but, but I also want to say before that, um, thank you, Sid, for inviting me and the Ansari Institute and everybody else who was responsible. Uh, I'm sure there were others uh, to this uh, conversation, but that would be my succinct answer to the first question. Thank you. Others of you, chime in. Who can disagree with the politics of tenderness? Um, you know, I was, uh, when, it, when the principles began with that particular point, I was reminded of one of the first hadiths, prophetic traditions, when people go to learn the tradition at the feet of traditional scholars. One of the first traditions they learn is, it says, um, and I'll, I'll say it in Arabic because you can hear the kind of word, um, there's an oral mm -hmm. aspect to the tradition. Ar-Rahimuna yarhamuhumullah. Which is um, those people who are merciful. So our traditions have slightly different vocabularies. Instead of tenderness, perhaps the word mercy uh, is more salient, but they obviously overlap and intersect. But uh, what the tradition says is, and this is a tradition by a tradition, I mean the saying of the Prophet Muhammad in the Islamic tradition that those people who are merciful, God has mercy on them. And then the second part is, man fil ard, have mercy on everybody who's on earth, all who are on earth. Man fil sama, so the one who's in the heavens will have mercy on you. Um, so I, there's a lot of resonance across these points. And um, what just strikes me about that particular tradition is, it puts together all these relationships is that religiosity is not never private, that mm -hmm. it's, it's relational. And so the people who are being addressed, they have a relationship to others on earth and also a relationship to God. Well, I, I, I oh, go ahead. 
Sorry, I just wanted to jump in on the linguistic piece here um, because Dr. Mirza has mentioned in, in Arabic and Hebrew, it's the same word, rachamim or rachaman, you hear the same. And in Hebrew, the word for, so rachamim, merciful, you know, translated many different ways. Somebody wrote an entire thesis, I think, on the meaning of the word rachamim. But within the word rachamim, you hear also the word rach, which is tender. And um, and one of the names for God in Hebrew is harachaman, the merciful. Sorry, Melinda, just wanted to put that in there as well. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, well, and I, I agree, like, the, I mean, that that opening phrase um, about the the radical revolution of tenderness. I mean, the, there's a there's an in English, certainly there's a, a fascinating kind of juxtaposition of those terms that that I find really endearing. But I I will. Uh, and and this is this is a piece of my personality. I sometimes need to be adversarial, even if there's agreement. Um, I I will push a little bit on. Um, let's see. I think it's it's principle number eight um, mm -hmm. that speaks about migration. And um, and I think what I would have to say here, from a, a womanist perspective, is the importance of noting the nuance, but like and the difference between immigration and migration. And so I think it's I think it's to the credit of these principles that that the terminology chosen here is migration rather than immigration, um, partly because um, there I, I was reading a, a children's book that was um, written and, and created out of the 1619 project of the New York Times, and as it's telling the story of enslavement and the nor uh, the North Atlantic. And the, or the Atlantic slave trade, there's a refrain in there. Um, as, as Black people, we are not immigrants, as a way of trying to heighten the tension around, um, from an intercultural standpoint, the tendency in the United States to say that the United States is a nation of immigrants, right? Trying to kind of minimize the stories of the complex stories of how people. Who, who are part of this country came to be part of this country. And so, so to opt for the language of migration rather than immigration is something that I want to affirm mm -hmm. um, while also noting that, that um, it's important to attend to the dis those distinctions between immigrants and migrants because, um, well, there would be some people who's who who came to this country through their ancestral trajectories and would reject that label of immigrant like being part of a nation of immigrants so i yeah for for what that's worth but again with my yeah. co-panelists here um there is a lot to affirm in these 10 principles well and a, a good point and again from a work in the global arena migration is more typically used than it is in a, a U.S. Uh, lexicon. And the point you make is uh, uh, the African slave trade is a horrendous example of uh, the most violent form of forced migration uh, mm -hmm. that we have experienced. Uh, uh, some folks uh, have questioned me uh, when I've used the term a uh, womanist uh, theology. Mm. So uh, let me allow you, uh, since this is uh, 
part of your scholarly work mm -hmm. to comment on the definition of womanist theology. Well, Sid, would you be willing to um, to maybe say a little bit more, like what kinds of challenges um, do people bring to you, or or how are how are you pushed? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, uh, let me bring uh, my experiences rather candidly and perhaps mm -hmm. embarrassingly uh, uh, to the conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, historically have been uh, more attenuated uh, to feminist uh, mm -hmm. theology uh, writings and, and, and concepts. Um, perhaps over the past uh, two years, hearing more conversation, uh, more literature around uh, womanist uh, theologies, which uh, seem to be uh, more gender uh, inclusive. Mm -hmm. And I'm hearing more conversations around uh, uh, womanist uh, theologies, particularly uh, from Latin Americans. Uh, now mm -hmm. that's uh, my limited contribution, and and so please uh, sure. elucidate for me and others. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Well, um, so so womanist theology um, has a couple of different kinds of pools or currents, depending on on how you want to kind of work with these metaphors, um, and what like what. Uh, the, the term itself comes from the writings of Alice Walker, who herself is a, a Buddhist, right? Um, and, and so represents a, um, a fascinating journey to an interfaith consciousness and, and way of viewing the world. And, and part of what she was trying to signal in the late 70s and early 80s was the need for a social analysis that recognized um, that liberation for women is not a one-size-fits-all t-shirt, right? Um, that, that for some women, what would be liberating is to be able to leave the home and, and peel away the necessity of taking care of children and, you know, kind of the suburban mom and leave it to Beaver. But what what that um, that image of the 1950s housewife who's feeling discontented can gloss over is the the pretty good chances that her life was being facilitated, her lifestyle was being facilitated by a woman of color who left her children at home to come take care of someone else's children, right? Mm -hmm. So so that to leave the house is liberative for some but to stay at home is liberative for others, right? So, so that, that uh, Alice Walker is, is, is pointing to how context matters would be one way to say it. So that the womanist thinking centers black women's experience. And here we're, we're speaking in a, in a kind of far reaching diaspora kind of way that, that we aren't just talking about black women in the United States. And, um, as womanist theory has developed, you know, there, uh, hey, you know, we're, we're academics and we like to fight over all kinds of things. So, so some of these, some of these distinctions and divisions are, are friendlier than others. 
but as as womanism um, both theoretically and then more particularly in the religious disciplines has has matured and taken shape there are some different directions and trajectories and certainly a piece of it is the movement toward uh, as i mentioned earlier a kind of interfaith consciousness mm-hmm. but there are other forms or expressions of womanism that um, that are much more focused on um, black women's experience within the Christian tradition, um, and and with it with a focus, a particular kind of focus on the coming together of race, class, and gender. Um, and so Kimberly Crenshaw's discussions of intersectionality kind of ring very true there um but which is also one of our principles yeah right right right. but i would also say then kind of in the academic context and so so some of this is also getting into martin marty's categories of public theology um you know where um well and i guess david tracy too where you have you know this public is made up of society the academy and then um local faith communities so, so womanist conversation kind of crisscrosses all of these places, but like in an academic context, for example, oh, this is probably a little more than a decade ago, I attended a session at the American Academy of Religion annual meeting um, sponsored by one of the womanist groups that was um, emphasizing interfaith conversation and, and partly because um, within the Christian expression of womanism, there, there is a, a, a very strong movement to the story of, you know, in, uh, among Christians, we would say of Hagar, right? The mm-hmm. mother of Ishmael. Well, you can't start talking about Hagar or Hajar without, um, or if you're going to do that with an integrity, then it immediately needs to become an interfaith conversation, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so that is some, um, so, there, so there have been womanist and feminist scholars who have, who have worked at interfaith conversation around that particular story. So, I mean, there's more that could be said, probably yeah. that's even a whole entire panel, but, but how I think about what womanism is, um, is, or, or kind of methodologically for my work, it, womanism is interested in helping people identify the the communal core of their belonging right and so that so that all um all of our public and private engagements sort of start at that core and then ripple out from there so so oftentimes in my own teaching um that's what I, that's what I use. That's part of how, because I, I, I work in a predominantly white institution with predominantly white students or um, students coming from the global South so that, so that we're also trying to do a kind of intercultural, international um, translation of some of these principles. Why are you do, why and um, why are you doing what, you, what, are, what you're doing and who are you doing that for or on whose behalf or um, accountable to whom? right is is kind of the is one of the primary womanist questions that i think um, is really important for everybody to be able to wrestle with and respond to well uh, thank you for that i mean my first introduction was by a chilean former catholic now muslim uh, woman uh speaking uh, on an interfaith panel 
about uh, the womanist com commitments that were guiding uh, her. Well, uh, as, as you looked at uh, these principles, what jumped out as a void? What was glaringly missing? So uh, I was sort of a little bit surprised, I suppose, and maybe I've just missed it. Uh, there's no talk of rights, anything being a right. And here I'm speak, I'm thinking about things like the right to health care, the right to education, mm -hmm. the right to be housed, the right to have enough food, etc. And also, uh, it's kind of, I, I suppose it's implicit in some of the points, but the idea that we humans are the only ones who can fix any of the problems of the world. Mm -hmm. So we, you've kind of enumerated all these areas that need attention or that, or that we could come together around, but, um, and maybe that's just so obvious that, that it doesn't bear uh, inclusion explicitly, but uh, that, that kind of uh, struck me. Uh, excellent uh, point. And uh, I, I hang my head a bit with that uh, comment because uh, my prior role was heading up a human rights organization. So uh, the Universal Declaration uh, has been of uh, uh, great uh, guidance and focus for me. So thank you uh, for noticing that. Other uh, items that are absent. Well, that's a very interesting observation. Thank you for that. Uh, Rabbi Karen, I noticed that um, the word justice isn't here, although just there are themes of justice. So I kind of withdrew my observation, but I just point out that uh, although the idea is obviously expressed, um, point seven, racism and sy systemic inclusion, uh, the preferential option for the poor, etc., are um, obviously to advance the idea of justice. Um, but justice and mercy, I mean, that's one of the, mm -hmm. those two uh, go together. And perhaps there may be a way to balance your know, tenderness with a kind of firmness. And these uh, kind of polarities or uh, uh, dyads in a way, uh, that's probably not the best word, are also deeply theological when we think of the attributes of God um, in the Islamic tradition. And so, uh, there's a wonderful scholar, Sachiko Murata, comes from the Asian traditions, but she wrote a book on the Tao of Islam, where she looks at the attributes of God drawing on the mystical traditions of Islam um, as having primarily feminine and masculine attributes and how those uh, interact with each other. So maybe that's a, a, a meandering uh, point that I'll make, but I'll direct us to number three, where I saw a deep tension uh, that maybe we can talk about or you can comment on uh, either our other panelists or you, Father Sid, where it begins with um, this idea of common life. And uh, is it point number three? Yes. Hang on. Let me get to the right one. Yeah, that's it. So a common table where all are welcomed, right? So it begins with this idea and it ends with we reject individualism. So there's a welcoming and everyone's mm -hmm. 
together, but then we reject individualism, tribalism, nationalism, and God and me pietism. And so my, the thought that I had was when we're, when we're considering these points in the context of a national dialogue, uh, how do we have dialogue with people who are deeply, um, uh, who we differ from in very deep ways? Uh, who are individualistic or who have a certain kind of pietism or who come with tribal ideas about religion and nationalism, who may be excluding the other for whatever reasons. Uh, so we have a common table, but from the outset, we've said this, this kind of person is either not welcome at the table or sits at another table. So that's an interesting tension that um, we can play with. Yeah, uh, uh, good point. Uh, uh... And we may have been uh, endeavoring to connect somewhat dissimilar dots. Uh, uh, one being the, the powerful imagery of a common table around uh, which all are uh, welcome. Um, and then second kind of, uh, a commitment to communitarianism, um, which, which perhaps uh, is, is more fully formulated in our principle around the common good. But uh, something for us uh, uh, to reflect on and, and look at uh, as, as we revise. So thank you for that. Just want to comment on this common table thing. So when yes. I first, my gut reaction to that was, oh, Christian, that's just to note, but also, uh, and I don't know, because I don't know enough about many peoples around the world, but it would seem to me that the eating, and I, and I thought about eating at a table, I don't know if that's what you had in mind, but it seems to me that most of the world's population probably don't eat around a table. Mm-hmm. So I, I wondered what you know what what you had in mind. Maybe I was wrong about all my assumptions about what you might have had in mind with this so-called common table. Well, I uh, as I try to recollect uh, the discussions. There was a, certainly the, the, the Christian table concept, but there was also commentary around the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, uh, where the, the seat of worship moved from the temple to the family table, where the, the traditions of, of worship were continued uh, uh, even, uh, to the Sabbath meal that is uh, family celebrated. Uh, so that also was woven into this kind of a uh, common uh, table uh, discussion. Uh, and then I've been doing some readings on the early uh, proto-Christian first and second century uh, community which uh, really was a, a Jewish community, uh, sometimes described as uh, these supper clubs uh, where people would meet to share a meal, to have social support 
uh, and kind of a spirit of solidarity because they were subject to the oppression of the Roman Empire uh, and were outcasts from the Roman Empire. So those were kind of some of the uh, components that led to this uh, common table concept. But uh, 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 I, I, I clearly hear the concerns about, I guess, those who benefit, who don't have tables of blend. Yeah, also, I think, you know, issues of like theological uniqueness and genuine diversity um, and, and, a, and a kind of pluralism that also permits for uniqueness of traditions. How mm -hmm. do those, how do those imperatives get balanced? So there's a common table or whatever appropriate word um, is necessary to, uh, to convey that idea. Um, but then there are times when there are separate tables. Is that ever okay? Or is that never okay? Or what conditions will make that uh, beautiful? And what conditions would make that abhorrent? Um, so th I think that that's something to play with um, a little bit more carefully. Also, so there this, this um, maybe categorical nature of some of the, the sentences. So we reject individualism, tribalism, nationalism, and God and me pietism. So maybe God and me pietism is okay, but it's not the only kind of pie or an absolute <laughs> God and me pietism. Like above on point number two, we recognize that storytelling is key to our faith, but maybe we recognize that storytelling is one key aspect of our faith <laughs> or one important aspect because it's not necessarily the only one, and for different traditions, maybe more or less defining. So tempering perhaps the language in, in some ways here. Thank well, you. I, yeah, I would, I would even delete the whole table reference. And I see people are putting in the chat that it's symbolic. Yeah, symbolic. But I mean, what, Sid, what Father Moan, Father Sid, I'm not sure how you like to be addressed. Um, Sid, what Sid was saying about, you know, the references to the temple and the references to the um, small sanctuary, uh, the table. I mean, th that only works if you actually know, either know the tradition or come from that tradition or, or both. And I would say the majority of the world's population doesn't. Uh, so if you're trying to do something universalistic, um, the, the table thing just doesn't seem to work. Okay, okay. But from Thank my perspective. You. Yeah. So well, I, uh, I, I wanna just jump in here quickly because there's, there's something that, a couple of things that have been said that I don't want us to lose track of. One, I think I think the term dyad is a really helpful word because um, we're, we seem to um, be allergic at this kind of cultural moment to talking about binaries um, and and uh, assuming that all binaries are oppositional, which they are not. Um, they so so a dyad being a way of talking about two things that are related to each other and help help us define like um, in, in positive and negative terms, um, I think is is very important and very useful. Um, the other thing I want to maybe say here too around this discussion is um, I think I think 
we're we're rightly pointing out a tension that is here in number three. And so maybe the issue has more to do with the things that create obstacles for us, maybe either individually or um, in the particular tradition or stream um, within our religious categories that we're coming into interfaith conversations mm -hmm. from. Like, so, so it, it seems like if we're gonna, if we're interested in cultivating a common life, developing awareness around the things that are obstacles Mm -hmm. to entering as fully as we might into this common life or this sort of shared reality. Um, and, and so there might be things that sometimes I as a Christian need to be willing to, um, for a particular interfaith encounter, set aside and, and approach with a spirit of curiosity. Not, mm -hmm. not saying that I'm abandoning my, my beliefs, but setting them aside in order to explore something else and then re-engage re and renegotiate this commitment mm -hmm. over here um, that I may not have reflected on very deeply. Um, but I also, I'm, I am super intrigued by um, this discussion we're having around tables. And I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about my own extended families and, and how for some um, parts of my extended family, it's not a meal if you aren't all seated around a table. Mm -hmm. And other parts of my extended family where um, the expectation is there are so many people who are coming to the meal that there's no way anyone, there's no table that's big enough. Mm -hmm. so, so the table is where you put the food mm -hmm. um, and then you, you let people or expect people in kind of little pods to sort of circulate around. Um, but but expecting everybody to be seated at the table in an orderly way um, is kind of antithetical to the, to the function of gathering. So, yeah, I mean, I think, this is, I think this is probably one of those things that's far more contextually and culturally shaped than, than I had realized before the conversation happened. Uh, well, sorry. What, I was, what, what, what I was getting at, I just quick, was, most of the world's population, I think, sit on the floor and eat. That's what I was getting at. And I see Dale Mark Benedict keeps making comments about yeah. tables and, and that they're universal. And yeah, I, I, I get that. But I, if you're going to, so then if, we, if we're actually meaning something else, then don't use table. But I see Clark has his hand up. Okay. Well, uh, and let's, uh, we'll come to the, the hands up and the, the, the comments uh, as we finish with uh, this discussion. So let's move on to the, the final question. Uh, do you find these principles lend themselves to communication uh, with the the person in the worship space, the average worshiper, so to, to speak, and lend themselves uh, in a in a way, of course, with your uh, critiques uh, factored in, in in a way that uh, both uh, leads to perhaps personal transformation but also uh, uh, a more activist faith. Okay, I'm gonna go first because I wanna keep what I'm gonna say brief and short and to the point. Okay. So, so I, I have a growing sneaking suspicion that interfaith engagement is actually a third space. Um, that is, that is, it requires a certain kind of interest, willingness, 
um, curiosity and 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 a depth about one's own faith understandings that that I I wish wasn't so, but I think that's true. That is, when I think about the people I worship with, um, some of them are like are still pretty um, uninformed about what it means to be Christian. <laughs> so that to have a of a conversation that is at all kind of meaningful with depth about interfaith kinds of questions is um, is a little beyond them. But but that's okay. I mean so I'm just going to say that and well let uh, let me think a bit with you on that. And what jumped into my mind was Martin Luther King Jr.'s World House speech where he says, we find ourselves living in this uh, common house as Jews and Muslims and, and Christians and uh, people of all languages. And, uh, and we must learn to live together as brothers and sisters, or I think then he concludes, or perish alone as fools. Uh, so, uh, is interfaith as a third space. There's a part of me that resonates with that, but then there's a part of me that says that doesn't drive transformation to world house understandings, which are needed for the, the future of the planet. Yeah, yeah. you know, oh, sorry. You know, thinking of at a high level, I think once you start talking to people, um, we, can, we can have good conversations on these. I'm thinking of my own community where some of this stuff they'll think about and we're not sure what to do with and it'll need to be explained. So when we say intersectional commitments, I mean, there's a whole, you know, depth there. And most people will say, I'm, I'm Muslim. What do you mean? You know, that's mm -hmm. my... That's my identity. And so the idea of intersectionality uh, would have to be unpacked. Um, so in reading this, you know, some of some of them might struggle. Some of them they'll immediately uh, uh, grasp, like prefer prefer preferential concerns for the poor, you know, loving the stranger, uh, spreading of peace, uh, tenderness. They'll be all on board. But um, other things uh, that have um, a uh, deep um, meaning uh, given our present cultural moment in terms of complex frames of analysis uh, would require that that ha that I think the words encapsulate would require a little bit of unpacking for uh, folks who are everyday worshipers in my community I feel thank you that's helpful and I'll be I'll try to be brief too so my answer is so the question is do the ten principles confirm a skill skeletal framework for a public theology geared to the person in the worship space that is transformative and activist? My answer is possibly, not sure, but then I wanted to add, but it seems to me that it's necessary to reach beyond the quote, people in the worship space, as there are fewer and fewer of them, but rather how do we reach people who are not worshipers and invite them to be part of such an intersectional inclusive worldview? I mean, if you've, anyone's got the answer to that, then uh, speak up now. But uh, 
a critical point as we look at the future of religions or transformative forms of spirituality and community. Yeah, a good challenge. Well, There's I a term for that in, in, in our tradition very quickly, or not tradition, but in our uh, kind of community space, it's called unmosked, the unmosked. I think they did uh -huh. a documentary on this as well, which is a, a, an increasing uh, group of people. Well, the other thing I would say is that um, a lot of the people I, I relate to and worship with um, are like their embedded theology again, and, and this might be something that, that nobody said explicitly, but it was kind of in the air. For some people, it was said explicitly was that, that, that their embedded theology when it comes to other religions is, oh, I think I'm supposed to try to convert them. Mm -hmm. and 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 if if that if there's something about that's that that is that feels repulsive or wrong or repugnant mm -hmm. then they prefer to just not talk about it and focus on interfaith and interreligious activities that do things like build houses together or um, reach out to legislators around a common concern like there's a pragmatic um issue oriented coalition building that that a lot of the, the people who i worship with are are happy to get on board with but there but it gets much more tender and nerve-wracking to start having a conversation about well am i supposed to convert them or are they going to try to convert me mm -hmm. And, and, and so if some of what we're seeking is, is a transformation, well, I guess I, I, I seek a transformation around that concern, mm -hmm. that, that very emotional concern. And, and so to that extent, these principles, I think, paint a picture, but also don't, don't help disarm that basic fear or concern. Okay, okay. Uh, let me open it up for the next uh, seven minutes or so to comments or questions uh, from other folks on the call. Uh, my co-director, uh, Stephen Slavak, is uh, going to facilitate that. So either uh, do a hand raise or put a question or comment in the chat and uh, Stephen will uh, facilitate uh, asking uh, those uh, to our panelists. All right, thank you very much. It looks like we have two hands and I'll start with the first one, which I believe was Clark. Um, Clark, do you wanna um, start us yeah, out? I, I have a, a, a quick thought in response to the various reactions to, to the idea of the common table. Um, two points actually. First, keep in mind that we started this discussion by uh, reading a document composed by the Pope. And so, yes, there clearly is a vision of the table as the table of communion within uh, a Christian community. Um, but you know, as I got to thinking about it, and this is what happens with symbols, metaphors, 
it occurred to me that one of my all-time favorite poems comes from the Persian poet Rumi in the 13th century. And it ends with this image of people walking into a room and sitting around a common table. And he says, and I, I wish I had his exact words, the light falls differently on the different, on the various walls of that room as they sit down. Still light. And I guess what I envisioned, because this is such a highly condensed document that Sid drew out of our discussions, is that each of these phrases is not going to be sort of, oh, yeah, I agree with that, and let's move on. It's going to provoke a question, a problem, an observation. Uh, even the idea of the migrant, uh, which I very much appreciate Professor Barry's comments on immigrant migrant. Um, if you think about in these various world traditions, these stories about migrants, exiles, pilgrims, they are everywhere. The story of humanity is for the world religions almost invariably in some sense a story of the traveler, the person on a journey. And so to use the word migrant is literal in one sense, but religiously, it also opens up a huge symbolic world. And I hope that we have the opportunity talking with both people in religious communities and beyond them to uh, allow that richness to uh, expand out and influence the way people think about one another and themselves. That's it, thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much, Clark. Um, okay, we've got a couple more hands um, and I apologize if I don't say this correctly, but um, Mirkan Jagini, uh, or you can uh, say how you say your name. But um, I see someone oh, with a. Um, yes, yeah, hi. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can. Oh, perfect, perfect. I was trying to put my camera on, but it's not letting me. For whatever reason, it says um, it won't let me. I have to look into that. Sorry about that. Um, yep, my first name is Manaz. I go by Albert, uh, he, him pronouns. And um, I just wanted to, you know, pitch in here because. This uh, sort of dialogue is really up my alley. Um, the, the only thing I wanted to pitch in here is the, the key in, importance for, for me anyways, is uh, the concept of the environment and going back to nature. So when I interact with so many different types of people, uh, on 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 the daily it's been a few months now I've been on a spiritual journey for uh, you know to pray for the universe and the environment I've been doing this on the lands and meeting people across Canada and specifically for the last few months in Newfoundland and I've interacted with several types of people while I've been praying and offering my salat and dynamic 
places like the gym or a restaurant or in nature. And many people have asked me questions, non-Muslims, um, atheists, Scientologists, Christians, Catholics. And I, and I love hearing people, I do, and I love listening to them. And when it comes to the notion of what I'm focused on, unity in my prayers and in my practice, I always draw it back to the environment. So after hearing people and their criticisms of Islam and my prayers or why I do this or why I do that, I listen and I draw it back to the piece of science and anthropology and evolution. And I pull from, in my practice anyways, from all the Abrahamic traditions. So all the prophets and messengers, which is inherent in Islam, but it's also a part of my persona as a historian, as someone that's passionate about psychology. So the only piece I wanted to throw in because Rabbi asked a question, she said, if anybody has an answer to this, please speak up now, is I just wanted to throw in that focus on data and science as one of the pieces that can help it's not a solution by any means when people interact in a courageous conversation of interfaith. It's a very sensitive time for people to, 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 to be vulnerable to criticisms from others if they're not in a good space themselves. But I, I like to take that science uh, approach that at the end of the day, we are all physical beings, yet spiritual in, in, a, in a means based on science and anatomy and that cosmos connection of consciousness comes into play and that's all I wanted to just throw in there and I'm going to see why this camera didn't work I'm sorry about that <laughs> you know it's science uh, it's science <laughs> it's science thank you for that comment uh, Albert uh, I want to just point out something here in light of that comment very briefly where it says in the point number one when which we share a visceral connection to all human beings. Visceral has the biological aspect, but we also have that connection being coded um, with the genes that we have with all other life forms, not just humans, and elementally with the cosmos, with our very molecular structure. So that, that expands the vocabulary. Thank you. And all kinds of like seeds migrate. So plants migrate. And so do the creatures. So of course humans migrate. I mean, would be another way that I um, that that turning into environmental ethics um, and ecotheology has helped me think about the human person differently. Uh, Stephen, I think we have uh, opportunity for one more question or comment, if there is one. Um, I think we do have one, uh, Amy. Hello, everyone. Hello, thank you so much for um, this opportunity. I just wanted to um, say I'm just very humbled. I am not a very academic person in theology, but um, this idea of being curious, even though maybe you don't have a full understanding of, of, of even my own, um, Professor Barry, and you talked about some people who maybe don't even have a full grasp of maybe their own faith, then perhaps not being able to participate in the wider discussion. And um, I just, I think curiosity is wonderful um, to 
to open our minds and um, just to be able to hear and start to be able to think as just, I consider myself a little bit more of a common person than some of you folks. And it's wonderful to be able to hear so many perspectives in this miracle of Zoom that we've discovered over these past couple of years. And um, to just be able to hear, and when I listen to um, Rabbi talk about the table, I think this is an opportunity because sometimes in our small tables, um, we have these discussions and we think we all understand it. And then we come to this wider space, then maybe it's not perceived in the same way. And so I, I started to think because I thought, well, of course, when I heard that word table, it made me think, yes, it's just open for everyone. But hearing from Rabbi, um, I think that we, you know, hearing it makes me think, you know, it's good to hear that and to know maybe there is a different word that we could use. Maybe it's gathering. Everyone's welcome at the, in the, at the gathering or wherever, whatever it is, because all, all faiths do have some gathering and some discussion and all of that. So I just um, appreciate, and even though I'm not highly educated in theology, there is this stirring within me to be a part of hearing at least all of these ideas. And when there is an activity that I'm able to participate in, I, I love to hear and to um, open, open my thinking a little bit more so that I can be a little bit more aware in my role. I'm an elementary uh, teacher. So it's, it's good for me to hear some of these other um, perspectives. And I'm trying to wrestle a little bit more with some of the things that I say to children that I've said for many, many years that now in these past few years, some of these more open discussions that we're having as a larger community makes me think again about some of the things I say to children. I'm wrestling a bit with, well, what do I say instead? So it's nice, it's nice to hear perspectives from all of you folks that spend so much of your time uh, working on these ideas. So thank you very much for this discussion tonight. Well, and uh, let me uh, thank uh, Karen and Melinda and Mahan for this, uh, to borrow the words, stirring a conversation. And the stirring, I think, is what all of us are seeking because uh, stirring is that first step in our own uh, transformation and, uh, and our collective transformation. This has been a rich, rich uh, conversation. I wish it could go on and on. Uh, the second half of this uh, conversation will occur on February 10th, again at 6 p.m. Uh, joining us with uh, additional perspectives will be uh, Dr. Uh, Tim Machovina, who's chair of the Notre Dame uh, uh, Theology Department, who will be commenting from uh, Latinx and liberation uh, theological perspective. Uh, also, Reverend Dr. Jay Johnson, a former faculty member at the Pacific School of Religion, and uh, currently rector at All Saints uh, Episcopal Church. And then uh, the third commentator will be Dr. Yu uh, Page from the Notre Dame Theology Department commenting from a black uh, theology perspective. So uh, 
I invite all of you to join in the second half of this conversation and uh, a heartfelt thanks to our three presenters who did a wonderful, uh, provocative, uh, inspiring launch of this discussion. My thanks to everyone. Have a good evening.